Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vago Maradian. Last week, we attended the Center for a New American Securities Annual Strategy Conference on Strategic Competition, Maintaining the Edge. There, we spoke with former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work, who is the Senior Defense Counselor at CNAS. Here is a podcast version of that discussion sponsored by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here in Washington, D.C. We're recovering the Center for a New American Securities Annual Conference, uh, this year titled Strategic Competition, Maintaining the Edge. And uh, we've got somebody uh, with us who has been working on maintaining that strategic edge, uh, former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work, who is a senior counselor at uh, CNAS. You formerly led the, uh, uh, the organization before you went back uh, to be Deputy Defense Secretary during the Obama administration. Sir, you've focused on, on this issue for a long time on strategic competition with the Chinese going back, uh, you know, de- decade or more, decades, I could, I could say. You gave a very thought-provoking presentation that was a reprise of some of the messages you were delivering when you were the deputy. What's changed? What's the nuanced message you were delivering now? And what's the hope? You know, what was the target audience you were trying to get to with the message? Well, first of all, it's great to be here, Vago. Uh, look, what I generally talk about under the third offset strategy was, oh, look at these anti-access aerial denial networks. We are power projection power. They provide us, I mean, a lot of different challenges. And so we need to start thinking about offsetting Chinese capabilities. But the presentation I gave today kind of flipped the script. I said, look, what happens if the Chinese are offsetting us? And I tried to make the case as I see all of the Chinese investments and all of the doctrinal things they're doing and all of the new units that they're standing up, what happens if we are being the victim of a deliberate offset program by the Chinese? And my conclusion is there is a coherent offset strategy. You can kind of see it. The Chinese don't refer to it that way, uh, but you can certainly see in their investments and how they train and the capabilities that they are fielding. And so I wanted to flip it around and say, maybe I was wrong by saying, hey, we need to think about a third offset. Because as I made the case today, that kind of leaves the impression that we have the kind of time to make up this offset and that we can be ahead of the game. And what I wanted to say is, what happened if our technological advantage is shrinking, 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 shrinking? And what happens if we're being offset? Maybe we should be more alarmist about what we're doing. I was trying to think of a way to do it so just the old political adage, run like you're losing. (laughs) That's the way I think we have to do this. I don't think we are behind yet. We're behind in certain areas. But the trend lines are not good. And I think the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I think the uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I think Secretary Mattis has said, look, we are concerned about the erosion of our military technical superiority and what that might mean in the mid-20s. So really it was more of a call to, hey, what happens if we're looking at this differently? What happens if the offset strategy is well, well ahead of what we're thinking and they're closing on us faster than we are responding? So that's what I was trying to get to today. Um, it was, uh, I have to say, it was a, I thought it was a great briefing, having heard your past briefings and discussed this with you over, uh, over the years. Um, and, you know, it's very much to the sense that uh, senior leadership have that it's not a near-peer competitor, but China is actually a peer competitor in a lot of ways. 
give us sort of the reprise for us the the high notes of that presentation because you covered it in in a lot of detail and in a lot of with a with a lot of thought provocation that if you start to look and to dissect their strategy it is a complete offset strategy to everything that we've been working on as you put it you know sort of out from out sticking us to really out thinking us Two-part question: Are they a peer competitor in this at this point, um, and should we stop using the term near peer? Um, and what are the things that are should be most concerning to us about what it is the Chinese are doing? Well, to answer your first question, I think the Chinese are a technological are approaching technological parity with the United States in guided munitions and battle network warfare, what the Chinese call operational systems. I think they're very very close to uh, technological parity. Now you say, well, what does that mean? And I'll say, well, look to the first kind of battle in the Western Pacific with guided munitions. It was the Battle off Okinawa in 1945. The Japanese fired 2,800 guided missiles, kamikazes. 14% of them got through the best defense on the planet in terms of naval defenses. Sank 34 ships, injured, uh, you know, damaged another 368, and killed or wounded 10,000 sailors. And what the Chinese present to an American Navy coming into the Western Pacific is much, much, much more formidable. So just the mere fact that they're a technological parity should give us all pause and cause us to say we need to think of new ways of operations. Then the Chinese believe very strongly that they want to operate from a period of technological, uh, you know, position of technological superiority. And the way they think they will do that is through a massive infusion of artificial intelligence, machine learning, autonomous vehicles, robotic vehicles, swarms. They think that they can actually bound over the United States. And so what I'm trying to get across is, look, this is a technological challenge that we have never faced before. Throughout the Cold War, the uh, Soviet Union surprised us. They had very, very capable systems, the Alpha submarine, you know, 40 knots, 3,000 feet uh, depth. They were always bringing in systems, but their overall technological capability far was far behind ours. And that was the whole purpose of the second offset. We knew we could beat the Soviet Union in that. Well, this is a technological competitor that's every bit as good as us. And uh, the five points that I made is, one, it all starts with industrial and uh, technological espionage. This is the most broad-based, state-sponsored program to steal secrets from the West to try to level the technological playing field. And as I mentioned, we just heard recently that they were able to get into a contractor and exfil a whole bunch of data on uh, un unmanned underwater vehicles and other things, unmanned, I mean, underwater capabilities. They are just going after it. And when you look at the way the Chinese develop systems, if they're going to develop an airplane, it takes them as long to develop an airplane once they get the prototype. But what this industrial and uh, technical espionage does is it shortens the development cycle. And that's how they are catching up faster than otherwise would expect. Second thing is their theory of victory is very simple. They view high technology warfare, that's their word, as a collision between two operational systems. That's the way they call it. We call them battle networks. But it's a very Soviet mindset, right? Yeah, the the operational systems. Strike complex. Right. So 
the Soviets, the Chinese, and the Americans. They call it differently. We call it a battle network. The Chinese call it an operational system. The uh, Soviet Union called it reconnaissance strike complexes. But the whole theory of Chinese victory is what they call system destruction warfare. They say, look, I'm not really worried about sinking 30 ships or shooting down 500 airplanes. If I can break apart the U.S. battle network, then I will win. I mean, that is the theory of victory. And they call it system destruction warfare. And I just mentioned all of the things that they're doing. They think about it every day. In my view, we have to assume that every single link, every single communications program is compromised in some way. Either it's covered by an electronic warfare system, or there's an implant, or there's something that is going to knock this stuff down. Then the third part of their offset is attack effectively first. That's the first rule of guided munitions warfare. And they do it in a lot of different ways. First, systems destruction warfare. If I can knock down the battle network, I can look deep and I can shoot deep before you can. Then they uh, concentrate on concentrated strikes. They like to shoot many missiles at a target to overwhelm the defense. Third, they want to outstick the opponent. In other words, they want to have mes uh, missiles and effects that are longer range than the Americans. And by the way, that was a great chart you had. And if there was anybody in that room that was missing the message, there was no way they were missing it at the end of that briefing. And then they made the decision to go with ballistic missiles and as their primary effector, kinetic effector. And it just makes a lot of sense from their perspective. It's cheaper to build a ballistic missile force than it is to build a high quality air force. Um, it's harder to shoot down a ballistic missile than it is an airplane or a cruise missile. Um, you can marshal these forces and shoot a concentrated strike without all of the tankers getting in the air and the EW aircraft getting in the air, electronic warfare aircraft. You know, so you can do surprise strikes. They know that we're a signatory of the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, which prescribes, uh, I mean, limits us to a 499-kilometer land-based missile. They're not a signatory, so they can build missiles as, uh, with as great a range as they want. And in a range competition where you're always trying to outstick your opponent, it's always easier to add range to a ballistic missile than it is to add range to a manned aircraft. That's a lot tougher. So all of these things, and then they go after hypersonic weapons, which is an area where we're, you know, as Mike Griffin says, man, this is my highest priority. We don't have a lot of defenses against these things. So when you have the combination of systems destruction warfare with attacking effectively first, operationally, you gain a huge advantage. Meanwhile, you're trying to catch up technologically through your espionage program. Then the Chinese say, well, look, I'm going to get the technological parity. I think we're going to get there by 2020. I think that's what their judgment is. The reason why I say that is President Xi said you have to be able to take Taiwan militarily by 2020. And I don't think he would give that order if he thought that they were technologically inferior. There's just too much risk. Well, now they say AI will allow us to, artificial intelligence will allow us to bound over the Americans. Artificial intelligence is going to lead to a new military technical revolution, and the Americans were the first mover in guided munitions warfare. So they had this huge advantage that they rode for 20 years. We want to do the same thing in AI. We want to be the aggressive first mover and leave the United States in the dust. And they have a goal to try to be a world leader in AI by 2030. And then the final uh, aspect of this, let me see, uh, so it's industrial, uh, is their assassin's mace capabilities. So just like us, you know, in the 
Everybody says the second offset strategy was all about conventional guided munitions and battle networks and stealth. That's really not quite accurate. If you rewind the tape to the early 80s, we revealed to the Soviets the conventional guided munitions and the battle networks in a uh, demonstration called Assault Breaker. But we didn't say anything about stealth. Now everyone was thinking about it, ooh, what's happening over there? But that was a capability that we wanted to protect because on the first day of the war, it would give us a war fighting advantage. So in offset strategies, there's a term that you say you reveal for deterrence and you conceal for warfighting effectiveness. The assassin's mace capabilities are the Chinese words for their kind of black super secret programs. And we have to be prepared to be totally surprised. Somebody asked me, hey, what would be the worst thing that you could think of? What happens if the Chinese had an anti-torpedo defense that was 80% effective? They know that we have underwater superiority. But if they could stop 80% of every torpedo that was shot at one of our ships, how would that turn out? Well, that wouldn't turn out very well. We wouldn't like that. The reason why I think of that is because of the Long Lance Torpedo, which was a, a Japanese torpedo with extraordinarily long range in World War II and totally surprised the U.S. Navy. And it gave the U.S. Navy fits for two years in the uh, South Pacific. And a gigantic warhead so that when it hit, it was a big problem. Big problem. So. You have all of these things. And you know, when I look at these five things, I say, this looks like a very coherent strategy designed first to compete from a level of technological inferiority, get to technological parity as soon as possible because that will make it more difficult for US power projection operations. And as soon as you can, get to technological superiority. And so my point this morning was, Man, what happens if we misread this race? What happens if we broke from the gate and we thought we had a 32-length secretariat-style lead, and meanwhile you have these two horses that were leading you, they were just drafting off your lead and biding their time, and they're waiting to, you know, to, and they have momentum. And so I just was trying to say, look, we have to think. Uh, we can't take for granted that we're way far ahead. We have to assume that we might be falling behind and we better get after it. You've been um, looking at all of these problems, right? Artificial intelligence is something that you were talking about for a very, very long time. Uh, Ash Carter started the Strategic Capabilities Office. Um, that has hatched a whole series of uh, capabilities that are highly classified. Uh, I know that we reporters were a little bit critical of the uh, last administration because it was you didn't want to even discuss the B-21 or even B-21 contractors. Um, did we get enough of a good start from your perspective that this administration, you know, as somebody who was on the front row of this in the last administration, that gives that is, has given this administration a head start in at least some of those counter capabilities? You know, put another way, did the things that we started, are they sufficient to offset all of the advantages that you just enumerated? Well, again, I'm, uh, I don't want to give anybody the impression that I think we're so far behind that we're, this, we're in a bad situation. I'm saying the margin of our lead is shrinking. And the question now is, you're asking, this is the way I interpret your question, is who has the momentum? You know, in the last 16th of a mile, are the, are the Chinese and the Russians pulling up with us? Or are we starting to pull away from them? And I would say it's definitely shrinking, in my view. 
And a lot of the decisions that were made in the 2010 QDR, like the B-21, et cetera, um, there are a whole bunch of other capabilities that we can't really talk about, but there was a lot of investment in uh, classified capabilities. We started to put a lot of money into uh, you know, demonstrations, hypersonics, tactical boost glide, uh, high altitude weapons concepts. But when you look at it, it's a three trillion, this is the way I look at it. I say, in 16 and 17, we were able to get $20 billion shifted out of the program into these advanced capabilities that we thought would start to redress some of these trends. That sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but it's a $3 trillion defense program. So is it enough? No, I don't think so. So I was really happy to see what was most heartening was the national defense strategy, I think, really captures the problem. We're in a competition with great powers. They, one of them is extraordinarily technologically clever and uh, hard. The other one is more revisionist, a spoiler, really caused strategic problems. Uh, but in 18 and 19, you saw a big increase in R&D, which was good. So that, I'm, I was very, very happy about that. But you haven't started to see any major changes in the program that you would say, oh my gosh, now we are really changing the way we think about operational problems and we're having new units and we're doing this. Haven't seen that yet. Now, the department has said 2020, the 2020 program will reveal the masterpiece, that the 2020 program will reflect the national defense strategy in whole from top to bottom. So I'm looking, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing the 2020 program like I'm sure you are. And at that point, I'll say, okay, I'm feeling pretty good now. Or I'll say, wow, we might have missed it. So uh, the jury's out. We're all waiting for this. Uh, you mentioned uh, that there was that $20 billion shift. Uh, one of the programs that uh, bore your specific hallmarks, and I know some of your co-conspirators on this one, was the Sea Dragon program that the Post did write about. I don't want to put you on the spot specifically on anything there, but ask you that that breach, whether it was for underwater systems, that specific system in which a lot of money has been invested, if we can take the Washington Post terrific reporter who did that story uh, and that he's been working on it for a while. So there was a lot of uh, methodical work. And for folks who you know always like to criticize the, the news media, I think the Washington Post deserves credit for, by agreement, deciding there were certain things they weren't going to publish regarding that story. Um, but also there is the compromising of electronic warfare files, for example, the submarine force was going to use, which is something integral to the enemy now having an understanding of what we understood about their systems, right? Yeah. So that's actually in some ways worse than the breach on the weapon itself. This came from a contractor who was involved in the program. The name of the contractor has not been disclosed and senior Navy officials have said there's a comprehensive investigation underway to figure out what happened. What does this highlight, and what's the danger of this? How, how, what does the department and the nation need to do about this? Because this was part of our assassin's mace capability that a lot of people thought very carefully on to complicate the problem for our adversary. How many more such breaches exist? I mean, is it possible that the Chinese have greater visibility into some of our counter capabilities? And, and what does that mean? How do we get our arms around this at this point? Well, first of all, what I know about the breach, you know about it. I read it in the Washington Post. So I don't really know what was taken. I know it was undersea warfare capabilities. And so it's not appropriate for me to comment on it because I'd just be spitballing. 
but it's just another indication of the Chinese state-sponsored industrial and technical espionage program. They're after our stuff every day. They are trying to find every vulnerability in our systems. And here's what worries me the most. Right now, most of the exfils have happened through vulnerabilities in our networks and where we store data. We are extraordinarily vulnerable in the DOD Internet of Things. Uh, the thing that was so, well, it was so alarming to me is there was a recent case in a casino where a hacker went in through the thermometer in the aquarium in the lobby of the casino, got into the system, and exfiltrated the high, uh, the high roller database. Well, if you take, think of the attack surface with all of the DOD Internet of Things, you have to be thinking, just how vulnerable are we? And the Chinese are very clever, uh, are very clever competitors, and they're looking for every single uh, you know, vulnerability they can find. So in, in my view, uh, we have to assume that our battle networks, all of the links like Link 16 and uh, all of our major communication pipelines, the Chinese have a theory on how they're going to attack each and every one of them if we ever got into a fight. They may not succeed, but they, it might be covered by an electronic warfare system. It might have a computer implant uh, ready to uh, trigger. Uh, it might have uh, you know, a deception operation. It might have an uh, effector like the PL-17, which is this huge air-to-air -air missile with an enormous range, maybe 200 miles, and it's designed to go after our AWACS, our airborne warning and uh, uh, command and control aircraft, or our tankers. All of these things, all our counter space weapons, you know, they think about taking down our network every day. That is their theory of victory. And I just don't think we take that threat seriously enough. And, and the last question, because even though I'd love to talk to you for about another hour, I think that uh, there are other people who are going to be waiting or are waiting for you. Um, so what are some of the basic steps we need to take, whether it's tactical or doctrinal? Every senior military uh, leader I talk to is talking about how we move off the grid, go back to mission command. That's something that's, that's not new, but, you know, hey, let's get the battle force out there and exercise as if it doesn't have that degree of connectivity. You mentioned the Sunburn missile, a good old-timey Soviet weapon uh, that was designed to counter Aegis, and the Chinese have, have refined it to a degree that makes it significantly better, the SSN-22, uh, 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 or SSN-26, excuse me. Um, you know, tell us what do you think, what are the top three things we've got to start doing now and the big focus vectors to, to try to figure out, because the guy has raised a lot of capability, he's stockpiled a lot of missiles, he has precision, with mass at distance, right? It was just very problematic. Uh, you talked about the network infiltrations and penetrations. Now to the submarine force, a, a group that has tended to shield its capabilities uh, very, very preciously, particularly signature files and things like that. Uh, right, and the next question people ask is, okay, our sound pressure level files also been compromised in this in this breach, not just the electronic and sound pressure level files or the acoustic signatures that we look for for uh, opposition uh, submarines, for example. You know, if you were doing this, what are the top focused priorities, whether they're strategic priorities, acquisition priorities, cyber priorities, uh, to to change this vector? Because I could, I could blame you, actually, for China's AI investment plan, because you were talking about it, and from a Chinese perspective, hey, they're Deputy Defense Secretary is talking about it. She announces, you know, his national initiative. So this is all your fault. <laughs> I'm joking, right? 
how, how do you think about how, you know, if you're advising Jim Mattis and Pat Shanahan, because I know you guys do have conversations, what, you know, what, what would be your guidance on that? Well, again, I want to make sure everybody understands we have a lot of capabilities and we have a lot of advantages. Uh, so this isn't like we've lost the race. Uh, again, this is a question of the degree of uh, technological superiority we have. We've always enjoyed a pretty big technological uh, advantage, and it, it is shrinking, so we have to do something about it. Um, first of all, we have to admit we have a problem. That uh, I think we talk about it, but you know, it's like we ought to be talking about it every day. I mean, I think back in the Cold War, everybody knew Soviet doctrine. Everybody knew it. They said, you know, hey, we know exactly what their advance party looks like. You know, uh, you would go to, we would go, the Marines would go to the CACs. The Army would go to the National Training Center. We would know exactly what their doctrine is. We would know how we would try to go about it. Uh, I don't think uh, our military really understands Chinese doctrine. I don't think they really understand Russian doctrine. Uh, we have to understand our potential uh, adversaries. Uh, I don't call them enemies, our potential adversaries. We have to understand how they think, how they're going to attack us, and what we need to do to flip the script on them. So to me, this is really more about thinking. Now, the whole idea of the third offset was if your system is starting to deconstruct, that if you have a lot of machine learning and autonomy in your battle network, you might be able to fight through it. And it was a hypothesis. We didn't know. Uh, but I believe that hypothesis is pretty sound. And so one of the ways to fight back is to go after machine learning, inject machine learning into all of our battle network systems, uh, to have more autonomy and, uh, between machine-to-machine -machine communications, uh, go to thin-line communications because you know your big pipes are going to go away. There's all sorts of different ways, but we have to practice this. We have to go out, you know, we have to have op fours that are trying to jam us every single day. In fact, you know, the National Training Center was the kind of that and Red Flag and uh, Top Gun, all these op four stuff in the uh, 80s. That was our training revolution. Right now, we ought to have the best counter network force on the planet. And every time we go out for a naval exercise or an air exercise or an army exercise, or an amphibious landing, we ought to be going up against these guys who are trying every day to knock down our network because that's their theory of victory. And we have to be able to either prove we can fight through it, which would really strengthen deterrence, or we have to say we got to think of a different way to do business. But again, you know, people came up to me today and said, oh my God, it's so bad. And I said, it's not that I don't have great faith in the joint force and our capabilities. Uh, and I agree with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that today we have a competitive advantage over any potential adversary. But the trend lines are scary. And uh, so I'm hoping to see much more urgency in the department's response uh, to these worrisome trends. Um, because that's right, because you sleep like a baby, you wake up every two hours hysterically screaming, which is one of the best <laughs> lines ever. Do you think, though, on AI, la last question which I have to ask you is, so from an AI perspective, though, that's a nation of 1.3, 1.4 billion people, uh, no personal freedom uh, issues. So when they get up on this FHI AI development, and you and I have talked about this over the years a lot, 
What's the danger there when you have a great power with a lot of financial reserves saying 20% of the national R&D budget is going to this, we will be leaders of it in, 30, you know, in, in the AI field by 3030. If you look at it from drones, China went from nowhere to like a leading maker, whether through Digi and a whole bunch of other companies. Um, you know, how, how, does, how, how does the U.S. and what is the national approach the United States needs for an AI strategy when the other guy is putting this as a national premium to become a world leader? Well, the first thing is you've hit the nail on the head. This is going to be a competition between authoritarian regimes and democratic regimes. And they're going to use AI differently. The Chinese spy on their own population. They use facial recognition on all their citizens. They have data that you would not believe that you, they can train their algorithms on. The United States is not going to use AI in that way. We will use it in different ways. It's important, and this is going to be very, very important for us to debate the ethical and the moral and the legal boundaries that we're willing to go. But your point is, this is a big competition. I mean, this is a Sputnik moment to me. China has thrown down the gauntlet and has said, this is the single technology that we believe will be dispositive in economic and military competitiveness in the 21st century, and we're going to bury the Americans. That scares me. So to me, it warrants a national response. It requires an executive branch something. I don't know if it's an agency. I don't know if it's uh, like the office of uh, OSTP, Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House. We need a national commission on the AI and the Congress to debate these very important issues. We need the Joint AI Center and the Department of Defense going after applications. It's going to require a major effort on our part uh, to make sure that even if we don't lead substantially, we're at least a real fast follower. So as soon as we see something, we say, okay, we get this, we can, we can do it. So it's a very, very, very important technological competition. Former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work, who is the senior counselor here at the Center for New American Security. Sir, thanks very much. It's always such a pleasure it's talking to you. great to see you, Bago. Okay, take care. Thank you.